The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Last time I was here, uh, I gave a message on why is preterism important. And in that message, I talked about how the Bible applies to every area of life and consequently how we should be impacting and influencing the culture in every area of life. And uh, one of these areas, of course, would be the area of economics. And while many would agree with this, they unfortunately see socialism as the closest modern equivalent to Jesus' teaching on the subject. Um, for example, the Institute for Christian Socialism, their headline statement reads, the Institute for Christian Socialism is an ecumenical institute founded on the conviction that the socialism of the gospel is irreconcilable with capitalism and demands Christian participation in the emergence of new forms of the political economy today. Another example, the Evangelical Labor Institute. Its founder says he's both an evangelical Christian and a democratic socialist. He claims you can say with your chest that Christ has died and risen for our sins and also that we can do better than capitalism. Now, we're coming up on Thanksgiving and with, we're thankful for our freedoms and with that in mind, these statements should just be alarming to anyone who loves freedom. But even more alarming is how popular this is among evangelicals. According to Kevin Swanson, a recent LifeWay survey reveals that evangelicals today are more committed to socialism than they are to the pro-life position. An example of Christians so committed to socialism that they're actually living it, is the Bruderhof community. Bruderhof's motto is, another life is possible. Love your neighbor, take care of each other, share everything. And they claim socialism is, quote, after all, right there in the Gospels. And that's where they start, right there in the Gospels. In fact, socialists start right there in the very beginning of the Gospels, with the birth narrative of Christ. For example, socialist Pat Nichols writes, At the core, the story of Christmas is about a homeless couple about to have a baby. It's a story about poverty, he tells us, poverty that most of us will never experience. It's a story about people with little more than what they can carry on their backs and only a donkey for transportation. Likewise, socialist William Sterrett says the true Christmas story is about the poor and the needy. We have a very clear picture about the whole thing, he says. The truth is Mary and Joseph were homeless and she gave birth to Jesus in a barn. According to Sterrett, this image captures the essence of the Christmas story because you can't get any poorer than that. Now, when you read this stuff, you honestly have to wonder 
if these people actually read their Bible. I doubt it. Socialists don't really read the Bible. They use it. The nativity isn't about a homeless couple who had no wealth. It's a story about an oppressive government plundering people of their wealth. And Joseph and Mary had a home, but they were forced to leave their home because of a decree from Caesar that all the Roman Empire should be taxed. And Yeshua's earthly father was not an unproductive member of society. He was a successful carpenter, a carpenter whose business was shut down while he took his very pregnant wife on a wild goose chase concocted by the Roman Empire to raise additional tax money. And to make matters worse, they have to flee to Egypt because of another oppressive ruler, namely Herod, who's out to kill their newborn son. And the irony of all of this is these Christian socialists are using the nativity story to promote a philosophy that would empower modern-day Caesars and Herods all the more, and a philosophy that would oppress productive members of society like Yeshua's earthly father. It's the ruling class, the government officials, who are the villains in this story. And it's this same ruling class that Yeshua is at odds with throughout the Gospels in his pronouncements against wealth and riches. It's those who acquire wealth off the backs of those who actually earn the wealth who are the targets of his criticisms. A good case in point is the story of the rich young ruler. The rich young, rich young ruler was just that. He was a ruler. The word being used here is archon, and it means one invested with power and dignity, chief, ruler, prince, magistrate, leader, or official. And it's generally agreed that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was basically the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. So, the word ruler is very important in understanding what's really going on in this passage. But that's not the only word we need to pay attention to. When the rich young ruler asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, he answers, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Now, these are all part of the Ten Commandments in Luke's account. Mark, however, adds this detail, which is not. Mark says, do not defraud, and this is a rare word in the New Testament. It's only used seven other times. Interestingly, one of these seven other usages is by our Lord's half-brother, James, who writes, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and their cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
You've lived life on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, there's so much going on in this passage that ties directly to the story of the rich young ruler. Earlier, James tells us exactly how the rich ruling class defrauded the poor. He says, are not the, wit, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name <clears throat> by which you were called? As members of the high court of the land, the Sanhedrin persecuted Yeshua's followers just as they had persecuted Yeshua himself. And it was within the courts that they withheld the wages of those who mowed the fields. As Jerry Boyer remarks, the nobility used corrupt cronies in civil offices, such as those in the court system and corruptible legal scholars to defraud the working poor who harvested their country. What we see is, this is a system tied to the land and exploited by a landed gentry. This is exactly what the gospel text implies about the rich young ruler. And notice, James also uses another word used by his half-brother Jesus when he was speaking to the rich young ruler. He uses the word treasure. As Nicholas Perrin explains, this word usually refers to the treasure room at the temple. The treasury was where not only the temple assets were stored, but where the currency wealth of the elites was kept on deposit. And this was to the tune of 2,000 talents, worth almost $1.1 billion in today's dollars. That's right, says Perrin, the temple was also a bank. And not only a bank, but a bank that played a key role in a system created by the legal scholars administered by the temple elite and used by wealthy elites to extract wealth from the poor. Now, James says these establishment elitists had stored up their treasure in the last days, and this is key. Jesus is offering the rich young ruler the chance to withdraw his securities from the earthly temple in Jerusalem and place them in the true heavenly temple before it's too late. Because as the coming war escalates, the Jewish zealots are going to raid and deplete that treasury. And within a generation, the Romans will come and level that temple and burn it to the ground. Not one stone would be left upon another. So, this is another area where preterism really makes the Bible make sense. For example, in Luke 6.24, Yeshua says, Woe to you who are rich. But throughout the Old Testament, wealth is a sign of blessing from the Lord, and he adds no sorrow to it. So then why? All of a sudden, does it seem like the New Testament is switching gears? Why pronounce a woe against something that used to be a blessing. It's for the same reason he says, woe to you who are pregnant and nursing babes in those days. This is something else that's supposed to be a blessing. 
The woes are because of what's coming down the pike. It's because of what's about to go down in that generation when the Romans come to level the city. When that happens, they're going to have to flee to the mountains. And that's pretty hard to do if you're pregnant and nursing a child and impossible if you're trying to lug all your gold and silver with you. In fact, there's even a passage in Josephus where he talks about people stuffing their, stuffing their bellies with their gold coins and stuffing their bellies with them until they burst. The point is that things that used to be a blessing were now a curse. And Jesus' followers had to learn to let them go. But this is not normative for all people at all times. The same thing can be said about people eating, drinking, and marrying like in the days of Noah, which would usually be good things, but not when the flood's coming or when Jerusalem's about to go down. And you also think about when Paul said it's better, you know, not to marry due to the present distress. This is all in light of the present tribulation, the coming tribulation, and A.D. 70. By the time it's all over, Jerusalem will be a field of blood and its real estate a graveyard. And Jesus' followers need to sever their ties to it so they can flee from it before that time comes. And this would be especially hard to do for the ruling class holding political power, harder, in fact, than a camel going through the eye of a needle. So, we have to understand these texts in light of their historical context. And this includes the things the New Testament says about wealth and riches. Everything in the story of the rich young ruler runs contrary to the way Christian socialists want to use it. In short, this isn't a productive member of society who's supposed to spread his hard-earned wealth around. This is a governing official who profits off productive members of society. And Kathy, my voice is going too. (laughs) Anyways, this is a government official who profits off productive members of society. And he did so by defrauding them of their hard-earned money. And socialists want to give the modern-day equivalents of these rulers even more power and money than they already have. This is the exact opposite of what Jesus was saying. Those in power should be giving the money back to the people who actually earned it. And just like the day of reckoning came for the Sanhedrin in A.D. 70, their day will come too if they don't heed God's word. Do not be deceived, says Paul. God will not be mocked. And in all of this, we're reminded of Exodus 18.21. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth. Those who hate dishonest gain. And you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. What's going on here is the previously enslaved Hebrews were now free, but they needed political leadership and the burden of leadership was too great for Moses to bear alone. So his father-in-law Jethro then gives Moses advice about both political delegation 
and the qualifications of political leadership. And there's three primary qualifications. They need to be, one, able men who fear God, two, men of truth, and three, men who hate dishonest gain. Now, this was as true in Moses' time as it was in Jesus' time as it is in ours. And at one point in our country's history, we realized this. According to historian Daniel Dreisbach, convention delegates occasionally invoke the Bible in surprising and interesting ways. During debate on the qualifications for public office, Benjamin Franklin spoke in opposition to any proposal that, in his words, tended to debase the spirit of the common people. We should remember the character which Scripture requires in rulers. He invoked Jethro's advice to Moses regarding the qualifications for prospective Israelite rulers that they should be men hating covetedness. In the story of the rich young ruler, Yeshua is returning to this standard by calling upon him to stop defrauding people. We need to hold our leaders accountable to this same standard. And drain the swamp is a good slogan, and I like the idea behind it. But I agree with Jerry Boyer here. What we really need is to purify the swamp with living water, the living water that comes from Christ and Christ alone. And people, this is why it's so important that believers who do fear God and do love truth and do hate dishonest gain to seek political leadership in our own day and age. And we, as their fellow believers, need to support them when they do. We need godly men and women in office in this country. Um, And getting back to our text, the next thing that happens in the storyline of the rich young ruler is Peter says, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. To which Yeshua replies, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother, brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Earlier in Luke, Yeshua says, No one can be my disciple if he does not give up all his possessions. In light of such statements, modern progressives claim Jesus Christ believed in many of the things that Karl Marx believed in. He believed these things long before labels on this ideology came to be. When you allow someone to talk badly about socialism, they say, you allow them to get away with twisting the message of Christ. But here's the problem. This is confusing the demands of temporary, earthly, missionary discipleship which were for a limited group for a limited time with the normative life of believers in general for all other times. A classic case in point is Luke 12.33. Yeshua says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. According to Christopher Hayes, Without qualification, Jesus said, sell your possessions and give alms. Then, using this as a proof text for socialism, 
he goes on to lament the fact that U.S. evangelicals are more likely than non-evangelicals, Christian or not, to favor cuts to federal spending on aid to the poor, foreign and domestic, unemployment and health care, and less likely than non-evangelicals to favor an increase in federal spending on aid to the world's poor, health care, and unemployment. Now, he assures us that Christians can remain in lucrative employment, which the disciples didn't, by the way, but we must get this, practice the theology of the cross in denying themselves the trappings of success, the fancy house, car, clothes, and vacations their affluence affords them in order to live simply and support the needy. And all of this is because Jesus is supposedly saying this without qualification. But there is a qualification here. This is a qualification for earthly, temporary, missionary discipleship, and Hayes fails to make the distinction. In verse 1, Jesus is speaking to many thousands of people who had gathered to hear him. In verse 13, he's still speaking to the crowd. But verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy, is spoken after he addresses his earthly disciples, in particular, specifically beginning in verse 22. In context, these words are not instructions for the crowds in general, but demands for his earthly disciples in particular. And even for them, things start to shift rather quickly once the events leading to his death begin to escalate. In our text here in Luke 12, Yeshua says not to worry about their life, what they'll eat, what they'll wear, or even to take money bags with them. On the night he's betrayed, this all changes, and it changes fast. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing, Lord. Then he said to them, but now... Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. The point here is that these demands, not to worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll wear, go, sell your possessions, etc., were for a select group of individuals for a specific purpose for a limited time, even for them to imagine This is how everyone's supposed to live their lives from that time forward is unsustainable and God doesn't expect us to. Remember, Peter said, we have left our homes and followed you. Like their master, they had no place to lay their heads during their time following him throughout his earthly ministry. As David Chilton says, this was a small band of itinerant, full-time missionaries who are constantly living together and have no place of permanent residence. But this was a special circumstance for a limited time and should not be considered normative for most Christians. Indeed, believers in general throughout the New Testament did not abandon their homes and give away their possessions. We know this because throughout the New Testament, the body of believers met in people's homes. If all believers of all time were supposed to live like nomads, abandoning their homes and possessions, the early church would have never gotten off the ground. 
believers would have had nowhere to meet. Now, of course, Christian socialists even abuse this. The early believers met in each other's homes to have church. True enough. But what could this mean, they ask? What implications does this have for us today? Well, according to Ronald J. Sider, in his highly influential and damaging work, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, an ideal house church arrangement is to have several families or single persons purchase homes within a block or two of each other. Living across the street or down the block from each other makes it convenient to share things such as cars, washers, dryers, freezers, lawnmowers, and even gardening equipment. (laughs) Living close encourages Christian community by creating open relationships that foster honest, mutual searching for a responsible standard of living. Thank you, Mr. Sider. So, if you're a capitalist, you can't win. Jesus and his disciples left their homes and possessions, so this points to socialism. But the first century believers met in each other's homes, and this points to socialism as well. Like I said, these people don't really read the Bible, they use the Bible. And they use it to their own advantage to push their own agenda, no matter what it really says. But the real question is, why would anyone want to live this way? I don't know about you, but I personally like having my own car, (laughs) appliances, lawnmower, and yes, even gardening equipment. And uh, I'm not really interested in, you know, using somebody else's stuff. But regardless, however, what the socialist neglects here is the fact that the early church was just starting out. They didn't have church buildings yet, so where else were they going to meet? And the fact that these early believers did in fact have homes and possessions means the obligation of earthly missionary discipleship to abandon their homes and possessions was neither universal nor perpetual. It ended rather quickly. And we see this in Acts chapter 21, which is really significant in this regard. This is where the disciples in the city of Tyre see Paul and Luke off for the last time before they head back to Jerusalem. At this point, we see the disciples are now reunited with their families, and Luke goes out of his way to point this out in verse 5. Remember, Luke's gospel informs us the disciples had left their homes, wives, and children, but now they have all three elements back in possession. You can think of it like, somebody going off to the military to do their time of service and then returning home. And Luke and Paul are heading back to Jerusalem and everything comes full circle when they return to where it all began. Luke's signaling to his readers that this aspect of following of the overall mission is now complete and following Christ will begin to take on a whole new dynamic. As the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible says, the word disciple never appears a single time in the New Testament outside the Gospel and Acts. Because the writers of the epistles saw in the meaning of the words disciple and follower, a teacher-disciple relationship no longer possible in the new era, 
They drop them from their vocabulary, lest those requirements of the disciples of the earthly Jesus to leave one's trade, his home, his father, his mother, his wife and children, etc., be universalized and made general requirements for those who would believe on him now as the exalted heavenly Lord. And this recognition is so important, not only in combating Christian socialist distortions of the Bible, but also in combating non-Christian attacks on the Bible. In other words, it's also a matter of apologetics, something we're all called to do, 1 Peter 3.15. For example, Mark Smith, ex-Christian turned atheist, writes, Follow the teachings of Jesus, and you'll be broke, homeless, and miserable within a year, guaranteed. Most modern-day evangelical Christians are so completely repulsed by these hippie ethics of their Jesus, they silently agree and believe these commands of Jesus are better off ignored, and at least that's one belief they actually practice. For most Christians, he says, common sense about marriage and money overrules anything Jesus and Paul might have said. In matter of actual fact, we're not repulsed by Jesus' teachings. We don't ignore them, and we don't overrule them. We recognize them in light of their proper historical context and in terms of audience relevance. And we're thankful for those first century followers of Jesus who, for a limited time, sacrificed everything to pave the way for the rest of us. And yes, in, a sp- in the spiritual sense, we are still his disciples or followers today. And we do need to put Christ above everything else in our lives. There's no doubt about that. But the New Testament never calls upon believers in general to give up everything else in their lives. And there's an obvious difference between us and those who literally did give up everything for a limited time to accomplish the first century mission for the sake of all of us who would come after. And once we understand the temporary nature of earthly, physical, missionary discipleship for the purpose of that original mission, almost all the so-called Christian socialism passages uh, are taken off the table. And the atheist argument here is likewise taken off the table. The requirements were not normative, and they did not continue. Now, another thing that was not normative and did not continue was the communal situation in the early chapters of the book of Acts. In these passages, we're told that believers had all things in common, sold their possessions, shared with all, and there was not a needy person among them. And this has been called communism in the early Christian community. And it's been used as a proof text for socialism for centuries. According to Christopher Hayes, the Jerusalem community portrayed as the early and faithful instantiation of Jesus' teaching, practices a fellowship that is comprised not only of collective worship, learning, and prayer, but also of table fellowship and, get ready for it, redistribution of goods from the haves to the have-nots. Now, isn't this the way we should live our lives? Isn't this Christian socialism? 
Isn't this the model for all people at all times? Isn't this the ideal way of living? The Bible's example of the way things should be each and every day. Shouldn't we be following the Jerusalem model? Not at all. Just like the example of missionary discipleship, this was temporary and speaks to a very specific circumstance for a limited time. And here's the situation. On the day of Pentecost, you have Jews from all around the Roman Empire gathering in Jerusalem for the feast. Peter launches into a sermon and 3,000 new believers are added to the church instantly. Next, 5,000 more are added in chapter 4. Because of the urgent need of being instructed in their newfound faith, these new converts stay on in Jerusalem much longer than expected. They obviously brought enough with them to stay for the feast, but they didn't plan on staying indefinitely. Nonetheless, they were there. And the early church is faced with an immediate economic crisis, an economic crisis of gigantic proportions. And God does command us to aid the needy, the truly needy. Thus, the Jerusalem Christians step up to the plate and help their new brethren in the faith. And I might add, this was voluntary and not a matter of coercion, government coercion, or otherwise. So, believers in Jerusalem who own property liquidate that property as the need arises, and they use the proceeds for charity. And let's not forget, all that property in Jerusalem was condemned property to begin with. Jesus told his followers, He's coming on the clouds to destroy it within a generation. And they know they're going to have to leave it all behind anyway when that day finally comes. So they're selling knowingly to others who will lose everything when this all finally goes down. In short, says David Chilton, it was tough luck for the rebellious crucifying Jews of that generation. God's new people used inside information about the future to rip them off. Uh, Don Preston puts it this way, the reason the saints in Jerusalem sold their goods, even their land, something forbidden under Torah, was because of the coming destruction, real estate values were getting ready to plummet. Um, And when uh, when I was going over this message with Mike Sullivan, Uh, He brought up a really good point that I never thought of before. Mike says, this is the exact opposite of what Jeremiah was called to do, namely, buy real estate in the land to prove God would bring them back under his faithfulness in the old covenant. This time, says Mike, they're not going back. It's a new covenant with new promises, and God's new people were tipped off in advance. Um, Just... Excellent tie-in with Jeremiah, Mike. Just excellent point. Um, So, rather than being a model for socialism, the Jerusalem model is an example of some very shrewd early Christian capitalists. They were truly wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, to put this in modern terms, the situation would be the equivalent of 8,000 Christian legal immigrants showing up at our door. And yes, we should help them. 
God expects us to help those who truly and deservingly need help. And we should consider lucrative financial ways to do this. But of course, 8,000 Christian legal immigrants showing up at our door at once isn't a realistic scenario. But it does bring us to our next point. None of this is to say that we're not to be concerned for the poor. We are. But it's the truly poor or worthy poor in the biblical sense for whom our concern should be directed. In other words, the lame, the blind, the orphans, the widows, etc. It was people who truly could not help themselves or earn an honest living. It was those who were unable to work and not those who were unwilling to work. The Bible has a name for this second class of people, and it has nothing good to say about them. God calls them sluggards. And according to the Bible, sluggards lack self-discipline. They waste opportunities. They're negligent and bring poverty upon themselves. They're unproductive. Their hands are slack. They're wasteful. They lack ambition. They don't plan for the future and beg from others who do. They make excuses for themselves. They're lazy and don't even take care of what they do have and they're self-deceived. In the end, their laziness will consume them, paralyze them, and leave them hungry. Solomon sums it up well in Proverbs 21:25. The lust of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to work. <clears throat> so, Ultimately, in the case of sluggards, their spiritual poverty is the root cause of their physical poverty. And no one's helping them to truly solve their problems by underwriting their sin. In Proverbs 19.24, Solomon uses a little humor and says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and won't even bring it back to his own mouth. And while the church should be a light to the world, and we should be reaching out and helping those who are truly in need, we should in no way subsidize the lifestyle of those whom the Bible calls sluggards. Brian Abshire puts it well. He writes, These people have no call upon the church's resources. Our response should not be to feed and clothe them and to subsidize their sin, but rather to admonish and discipline them. This sounds harsh and cruel, but pain serves a very important function in a fallen world. It's a sign that something is wrong and changes need to be made. If the church attempts to relieve the pain without changing the behavior that caused the pain in the first place, we are acting against against the best interest of the person and sinning against God. Yes, Yeshua said, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The Christians who promote socialism love to latch on to this verse, but he didn't say, blessed are the sluggards. We need to distinguish between the worthy poor who cannot work and truly need help and those who are sluggards who either will not work or will not work enough to help themselves. The late Ron Sider, who again was a Christian socialist, taught that God is always on the side of the poor without distinguishing between the worthy and unworthy poor. Um, Okay, I'm sorry. And always working to overthrow the rich 
without distinguishing between the honest and dishonest rich and redistribute their assets to the poor regardless of the reason for their poverty. And Sider taught that this is the program that we, as God's people today, should be on board with. It's the program that Karl Marx called the permanent revolution, or the revolution that never stops, as Tolstoy called it. In other words, we must be constantly and continually working to overthrow the rich and spread the wealth around, as Barack Obama put it. According to Christian socialists, this is the economic philosophy that we as believers should be supporting. And many of them openly admit, it, openly admit to voting for politicians who endorse these ideas, even though these same politicians support abortion. And they justify this because that's the economic philosophy of Jesus Christ himself, or so they tell us. Again, we're supposed to believe that this Marxist ideology has its roots in the teachings of our Lord and Savior himself. Jesus was supposedly a Marxist or a socialist long before it had a name. In today's terms, it's called progressivism or social justice. In theological terms, the phrase liberation theology was in vogue a few decades ago. Whatever label you want to put on it, this is not what Yeshua endorsed, nor what the Bible teaches, all claims to the contrary. And in classic Chilton style, David Chilton breaks it down like this. Actually, this notion of permanent revolution brings up an intriguing point. <laughs> the seesaw philosophy of history is apparently required here. When God overthrows the rich, they become poor and the oppressed become rich. Since God always sides with the poor and overthrows the rich, he must now side with the formerly wealthy against the newly rich. In Sider's social theory, everyone's miserable. If you're poor, the rich oppress you. If you're rich, God overthrows you, sort of like cosmic hot potato. Up, down, up, down, up, down, and the last one with the money goes to hell. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you got to love Chilton. <laughs> and Chilton was right, and we have to realize that the poor whom God sides with are the worthy poor or truly poor who cannot work or generate an income through no fault of their own. They are not young, able-bodied people who'd rather sit home and collect COVID money. And the rich whom God oppresses are those who acquire their wealth through fraud and dishonest gain. They are not honest entrepreneurs and hardworking people who are trying to do something useful with their lives. And we fall under God's judgment when we turn a blind eye to those who are truly in need and legitimately cannot help themselves. But we likewise fall under God's judgment when we support an economic or political policy that subsidizes sin by aiding and assisting unproductive people to continue in a lifestyle that feeds off the rest of us. And most importantly, we fall under God's judgment when we seek to empower the politicians who promote this philosophy all the more. In the Gospels, Yeshua is not coming against hardworking people for trying to make something of themselves. He's taking on the political establishment for preventing hardworking people from making something of themselves. And 
If you don't think that goes on today, just take a good look at your paycheck. Look at it in terms of what you actually make and what the government takes. This is more than God allows. Remember, when the Israelites wanted a king, God warned them the king would take a tenth of their seeds and vineyards and a tenth of their flocks. Altogether, state, local, and federal taxes amount to a lot more than one-tenth of our paychecks today. And one way we can apply the Bible to every area of life is to call our leaders out and demand they take no more of our earnings than what God allows for in His Word. And if this were the case, socialism would be impossible. There simply wouldn't be enough money to do it if we did it God's way. And this, in and of itself, should be enough to demonstrate that Christian socialism is an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. Christianity is based on the Bible, and the Bible does not support socialism. But it does speak to every area of life. And we need to speak to people about what it says in all of these areas. And this includes what it has to say about economics, wealth, and poverty. And uh, to this end, I'd like to close with some resources that help me put this message together and can help all of us to uh, educate the general public regarding what God's Word really says about these matters. Um, First and foremost, two classics. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators by David Chilton and Bringing in the Sheaves by George Grant. Both of these are now available for free online in PDF form. And uh, two really good more recent works are The Maker versus the Takers by Jerry Boyer and God versus Socialism by Joel McDermott, both of which you can purchase from our friend Gary DeMar at American Vision. Uh, and with that, and if you like, if you get these books and you read them, uh, especially the ones by Boyer and Chilton. You'll see a lot. <laughs> You'll see a lot of it in this message. They're really good books, really helpful. And I guess it's time uh, for questions. If anyone has any. Oh, um, yeah. If you have any questions at home, um, just go ahead and text in to the same number that you uh, that you always do. And uh, David will read the question off, and I'll try to answer it. <laughs> um, from Norm. Oh, Norm. Hey, Norm. <laughs> Norm, first of all, says, Bob, first of all, I'm so glad I met you, brother. You're one of the best. <laughs> well, back at you, Norm. <laughs> and here's Norm's question. He says, uh, just how rampant do you think this heresy is spreading in the present climate of ignorant Christians? Oh, I don't, um, I, you know, when I checked out that, uh, what was his name, Kevin Swanson, he had a, he had a surv- survey where it says, you know, it's actually more popular than the pro-life position among evangelicals. And I know, I personally know people that have voted for pro-choice candidates and they justify it by saying social justice and economic equality are also issues we need to be concerned with. You know, abortion isn't the only issue. To which I feel like even if I thought things like uh, socialism or whatever else, what gun control, whatever, whatever else. Even if, even if I thought these things were biblical, which I don't, there is no way I would put any of that above the life of even one unborn child. So it is not an excuse to vote for pro-choice candidates. 
Um, but having said that, my aim here was kind of just to take that excuse off the table. So like, you can't use it. Social justice, economic equality, there is no excuse. Those don't work, you know. But I, I, think, I think it's pretty widespread. Um, More than the pro-life movement, huh? According to that, according to Kevin Swanson. Really? That's surprising. But I, you know what? You hear it all the time, though. You hear more and more on these radio call-in talk shows. People are like, you know, abortion isn't the only issue. And then they go into this um, tirade about, you know, they call, they don't, terms change over time. I don't hear a lot of people saying socialism anymore. The new terms are like economic equality or social justice, things like that. But it's, it's the same thing. And it all means the same thing. And in my opinion, it's just, it's communism. You know, it's just. Socialism is just a lighter-hearted version of the same thing. You must be hanging around with the wrong people. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't hang with these people, man. <laughs> um, anything else, or are we we good? Anybody got any? Anybody in here got any questions? That's. Uh oh. Uh oh. Wait, what is what? What did you say your name was again? I can't remember. I just say Mike. Yeah. Pitbull of preterism. We usually hear from some of these same kind of folks that we don't need walls, right? Oh. We, nations don't need borders. We just need to just let everybody in, no qualification. I mean, what do you think about that in light of even the Old Testament paradigm where? There was walls. There was condition to be a citizen in Israel. I mean, yeah, I, I'm. Hey, I was all for build the wall. So you know what I mean. And I believe, I believe in legal immigration. I believe my 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 late wife's parents fled communism in Ukraine to come to this country, and they did it the right way. They had to work. They had the Constitution memorized, and they could barely speak English. Back then, you had to do something. You had to earn it. You had to you know, prove yourself. So I'm all for, I mean, yes. I mean, I understand wanting to flee from oppressive governments and come to, you know, the land of the free. However, if, if, but if we don't start doing our job and pretty soon this isn't going to be the land of the free anymore because, uh, the promises that these people go out, you know, put out there, you know, you're going to be taken care of, yada, yada, yada. You know, communists did the same thing. And we don't, we don't know what we're asking for. If we don't know what we're asking for in this country, uh, freedom should trump everything. But Glenn. I don't have a question. Um, I just want to compliment you. That's one of the most oh, thanks, Glenn. enlightening and interesting sermons I've ever heard. Oh, thanks. Well, I tell you what, that's uh that means everything to me coming from you, Glenn. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. So, and congratulations to Glenn and his new bride. Congratulations. How how long has it been now? A week? Last Sunday. Last Sunday. So it's exactly one week. It's so, all right. No <laughs> oh, he's got to count it down to the hour. Stan. Became a citizen. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like your parents. Yeah. Are, well, my yeah. She basically got a CD of a hundred questions with the answers, and she had to learn that. Oh my word! And then I mean, it's you know you have to speak English, and then you have to basically repeat like the 
they'll tell you something and you repeat it after them. Yeah. So and that was even under Obama. Yeah. That's and and sadly it's expensive. Trust me. Because <laughs> you have to become a, a resident and then you become a citizen and you know Yeah. It, it's a process, so yeah. Yeah. I mean and I am all for that and I'm sure my kids do. Yep. The, the immigration, yeah. The you other do thing it the is right way. I'm sorry. Um, oh no, go ahead. Uh, if you ever get to go to a citizenship uh, ceremony, do it. It's very, and you know, it's very good, enlightening, really. I, I wow. was impressed. And, we still have one. Never been to one. Well, maybe not now. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I've never seen the distinction between the poor before. Oh, like sluggard. Yeah, I've never heard. I've, I guess I just never picked the, up on that, and that there's the distinction between the poor. Like, like the, that's the thing. If you run through the Book of Proverbs. It has nothing good to say about people that don't work and just want free stuff. Nothing. Yeah. And but in the same sense, you know, there there are people who truly cannot do it themselves. There are handicapped people. There are people with, through no fault of their own, are not as fortunate and blessed as the rest of us, and we better. Help them, you know. It's like recognizing the eight thousand. They did what they had to. Oh do yeah, to so yeah. you just have to recognize it. Yeah, exactly. And I never thought of that either. <laughs> like that was the most like, oh, they had eight thousand people to feed. Yeah, but, you know that. That was Chilton. Yeah, that that, that part. Just, those two books. Uh, they're they're all good. All four of them are excellent. Don't get me wrong, but especially the one by Chilton, and then the newest one is. Uh, the Maker and the Takers by Jerry Boyer. It's just, uh, it's excellent. But, um... Isn't it interesting that the, that the people that are crying out against the rich are the rich? Oh, I know. Yeah, well, you know, they're probably the ones that got there through fraud and dishonest gain that Jesus is talking about. You know, this crony capitalism. Like, I'm a capitalist, but I don't believe in crony capitalism and uh, all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of what you had going on. Boyer's book will take you deep, deep, deep into it where the Sanhedrin and basically what's going on with the Romans and just everything, like how corrupt the system was and how they defrauded people from the wages that they were. I mean, I just touched on it briefly because it it gets really deep. But if you want to just really drill down on that, get that uh, The Maker versus The Takers by... Jerry Boyer, it is it is excellent. He has just yeah. Um, the the maker versus the takers and God versus socialism. So the one by Boyer and the one by uh, Joel McDermott. There, Gary has both of those, I believe. If if not, fine. But if Gary has them, we should you know we should support American Vision. Um, I they he has both of them. The other two, if they're in print version. Still, I imagine Gary DeMar would have them, but I'm not sure they're even in print version. But they're very, very easy to find. Gary North's website is still up, even though he passed away. And long before he passed away, he made just about everything that that he published available for free online. So, I mean, you can download the PDFs. So, um, it's still nice to, if, if if you can find them in hard copy, it's nicer, but at least they're, at least they're out there. Yeah. All right. Oh, Jonathan. Hey. <laughs> hey. There seems to be like two basic approaches right now to dealing with socialism. There's the fight it head on, and then there's the parallel. 
kind of approach. Ignore them, maybe they'll go away. Build a stronger economy uh, and ignore the communists. What, what do you think is the more viable approach? I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I haven't thought that far about it. I just know I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> I honestly, I think... Everything we could possibly think of now is almost short-term. Like long-term, what we need to do is born-again, spirit-filled believers need to start filling some of these positions. And the people in the legislatures who make these decisions have to be people that seek the guidance of God through His Word and the wisdom that comes through His Word and base their legislative decisions on what what God teaches. Like, ultimately, like, anything we do now, I think, is just putting a Band-Aid on it until God's people wake up and rise up. It's just like, uh, I was talking in the podcast yesterday, uh, Vishal Mangawadi has that video on YouTube, where he talks about how evangelical Christians, for the most part, have withdrawn from the area of law and justice. And, uh, and, David brought up the example of Regent University, and like I'm not saying that every dispensationalist is anti-justice, law and justice, or you know, seeking that kind of career, but they have to realize that we talked a lot about presuppositions. That's not consistent with their presuppositions. And um, just the fact that since dispensationalism has basically taken a stranglehold on the church. Mangawati points this out, Christians have retreated from that area and now very few judicial seats are filled by evangelical born-again Christians. Just kind of shows how eschatology affects everything and then what the real need is, the real solution for, you know, God's people to start uh, running for office and filling some of these positions. So so if you're, on, if you're young and you're on fire for Christ and you're wondering what you want to do with your life... Uh, Think about that because we need you. <laughs> Church, you know, we constantly have people coming and wanting money from us. And I, before we started this church, long before, I was on staff at a really large Baptist church. And I was, they put me in charge of benevolence because they didn't want any money getting out of the thing. So I guess, but it's almost, it's very rare to find someone who actually is in need, not just trying to scam you. Wow. And I mean, I've seen every, you know, people come in, oh, I have cancer and I can't work in it. And then you find out they don't even have cancer. They just made uh, this stuff up. They bounce from church to church. So it, it is, you know, when, we, when we're faced with a, an emergency situation, we will usually, our policy is we help them better act in love and, you know, make a mistake. And then secondly, oh, then we I go to investigate yeah. and find out, did they really have a need? And like I said, yeah. I just, I can't even think of a legitimate case where someone was not in the category of slugger, wow. you know, who came to us asking for money. Well, so, yeah, I would say, you know, even myself, yeah, you know, somebody needs help, you help them out. But then you take the time to check it out, and if if they were pulling your leg, it's kind of like fool me once, you know. But well, we had a lady come in, sat here, cried the whole service, you know, and afterwards I'm like, what? How my my husband left me, and I'm all alone. I have cancer in this, so I went to the motel. We paid for some nights for her, got her some food. Wow. Talked to the clerk at the motel, and she goes, oh, her husband's back there in the room, and you know, and just, and then about six months later, she came in again, you know. And I guess she thought we had a short-term memory loss or something. But I'm like, oh, hi, how's the cancer? And she went, 
She got this shock look on her face. Oh, that's right. I told you scurried, that. Yeah. Scurried out the door, you know, because <laughs> oh, that's not going to work again here, you know. So I got a, a question here from or comment from Ron. He says, another resource, they come from a futuristic perspective, but it shows how rampant the socialism, progressivism is throughout the church. Then he says, Enemies Within the Church by Trevor Loudon is a documentary worth watching. Oh, yeah. Christians have not yeah. sought office because they're of the belief that Jesus will come back and fix it for them. Christians are the very people needed in government. Yeah. Excellent message, he says. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, Ron, you're, you're right on target. And thanks, for, uh, thanks for passing that. I got another question here. I don't know who it's from, but it's it's a local number, so why are you texting and not here? (laughs) It says, how many people contributed towards that survey, if known? I I guess they're referring to the survey about... Oh, um, I don't know. Kevin Swanson was the... um, I I had the picture up, so you can can scroll back and look at the picture. Uh, Kevin Swanson was the one reporting that. It was a life... Lifeway survey. Um, I would just Google him. He has podcasts. He has a lot of information. Um, I consider him, you know, trustworthy. So that's that's where I. I didn't do the survey, so I don't know. But uh, but I, I trust Swanson to give accurate information, and he cares about the right things. So okay, this is from John. John says, "Love the blue collar scholar. Excellent message." Thank you. And he says, "Even Bono came to realize that capitalism." Was the off ramp from extreme poverty? Really, I, uh, that's what he says. I got quite a few coming in now. Wow. Uh, Junior from Canada says, "How can we get the book, The Return of Christ, uh, sent to us here in Canada?" I, I don't know, Junior. Can't you order that off Amazon in Canada? Yeah, you, you probably could. That's the book right there. Yeah, it's. I think you Amazon. could get it. You can even um. Go on Facebook and look for Pete and Rachel. Yes, that's Pete a junior. If you go on Facebook, on Facebook and uh, yeah, look up, them, they'll figure something out. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You All should, right, you Sandra from California says, when these Marxist ideologies enter the evangelical church today, doesn't it cross over into the cult and occult religion? I. I never really thought about it. Um, I don't like cults. I don't like the uh, occult. uh, And I don't like Marxism or socialism. So it really doesn't bother me, I guess, to lump them all in the same basket. But honestly, I think, honestly, I think there are a lot of sincere uh, believers whose heart is in the right place. They think they're doing the right thing. And like Rick had just mentioned in his comments, like not a lot of people talk about the distinction between the worthy poor and the sluggards that Solomon talks about. So I think many people are honestly misguided. I think their heart's in the right place. They know God commands us to help the poor and help the needy and those less fortunate. They just need to make that distinction and realize that socialism, it doesn't make that distinction. So, but but I think there are there there are good people, solid Christians that just. All right, this is from uh, Gary in Pennsylvania. He says, so in reference to James saying God chooses the poor of this world, is this poor in spirit or actually the poor? Well, didn't dig into that one that much. Uh, At the time, it could have been 
the actual poor, because remember what was going on, the rich, the establishment elitists, the Sanhedrin, were persecuting Jesus' followers, and the way they do it, did it, again, get Jerry Boyer's book, you'll see how they did it, they were withholding that which was rightfully theirs, they weren't paying them their wages, so... As believers in Christ, we understand we need to be poor in spirit. We can't be arrogant. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. So, yeah, they're poor in spirit. But they very well may have been actually poor, but it's because of the oppressive leaders, the elitists, um, persecuting them. So, Okay, another, another question here. So they ask, what about vagrants living on the street? Well, you know... There, there are, look, when I, this is like, uh, gosh, like late 80s, early 90s, um, I, my wife and I lived in uh, PA, I was going to school out there, and we actually drove like two hours to go to David Wilkerson's church, Times Square Church um, in New York, and uh, worked with the homeless, and some of them are there because of bad decisions they've made in life and continue to make drugs and alcohol and whatnot. And some of them, you listen to their story and they just had some tough breaks. So, you know, God, we need to use discernment and we need to make sure that we're not turning our back on people that really, truly do need help. But in the same sense, we have to use that discernment and just not let people who make irresponsible decisions think, there's a free ride, you know. I agree, and, I, and, yeah. and I've dealt with, talked to a lot of these people on the street, and most of them, they, they want a handout or something, but they don't want to get off the street. I most mean, of them most don't. Of them Some are there of them really do, though. But it, and it's, yeah, I mean. It's, it's out there doing what we're supposed to be doing, you know what I mean? Um, you know, reaching out to people, telling people about Christ, seeing where the need is, talking to people, doing what we're supposed to be doing, and then you talk to the person, and you kind of get an idea of, What's going on you know, here? These people stand on help, the corners. Them, you know? People stand on the corners with their sign, you know, and yeah. stuff. A lot of documentaries following those people back to their Mercedes, and you know, I mean, talking about how much money they actually make by standing on that corner. So, yeah, it's like you said, we really, we I, really need discernment I remember, dealing with this. Real quick, John Stossel did a. It might still be on YouTube. He did an actual episode of one of his shows where he dressed up like one of those people with his sign. And he was like, I did pretty good today. And he had his whole thing full of cash. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> okay, a uh, couple more here, and then we'll take some from, from the floor here. Um, Norm again says, uh, do you think a big part of the problem is dispensationalism contributing to the complacency? Yeah, I do. I mean, but you kind of saw that answer coming. Yeah, yeah. I, say, yeah. Um, I of course, do. But Norm. like David, David brought up the point yesterday. I mean, Regent University, they're... And uh, you know what? There's a lot of good. There are dispensationalists in Hollywood, for example, that make some pretty good movies, even though they think they're polishing brass on a sinking ship. Their mentality is, Jesus said, occupy until I come. And maybe there's nothing really wrong with that, but like, it's a lot more exciting when you think you're not going to lose anyways, you know, like when you have actual uh, chance of, you know, winning this thing. So, 
But by and large, though, yeah, dispensationalism. There's that quote from Gary North that I talked about last time. You can actually date the church's cultural decline to about 1870, and that's when dispensationalism, which started in 1830, really, you know, hit it big. And from that point on, it's obvious dispensationalism has dominated the church. And look what we used to do compared to what we do now, you know. All right, this is from Jill. Jill said, thanks for a very helpful message. Here in Costa Rica, we see so much poverty every time we go out. Lots of beggars. It's always been difficult for me to discern who should I help or who shouldn't I help. I feel guilty driving by someone who is asking for help. Lots of refugees here from Venezuela. Thank you for this message. It's given me a lot to consider. Jill. Oh, thanks, thanks, Jill. Yeah, that's discernment's the key. You know, All right, that's that's it for the online. So if you you guys, Karen. <laughs> yeah, there's also a book. Uh, that's a free PDF. It's called Marx and uh, Satan. Oh. And it's by Richard. It shows you that Marx really was a Satanist. Oh, okay. And, that uh, that goes to what somebody had asked. You know about yeah, the occult. Yeah, and and his and name stuff. is Richard Wormbrand. W W U R M B R A N D. He was. Persecuted. I mean, when he talks, he can barely walk. Oh, so he's helping. He's got it on the stage. Richard, Richard Worm, 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 you know, another book to check out. Thanks, Karen. I was also, it's funny because a lot of people I know, like you said, the, the, the legal immigrants, they love the freedom of America. They understand it oh, yeah. communism and they fight for it. And a lot of the Americans haven't been taught, like we were taught about communism. Oh, yeah. At my age, but I don't think they're teaching oh, no. of what to be oh, afraid of. It's all, no, they, they don't know what they're asking for. They don't know for. what they're asking for. And I tell you what. This might be in PDF form online for free, I don't know, but there is a book. The title of the book is The Black Book of Communism. And if you're even starting to think that, yeah, maybe this is the way to go or whatever, this doesn't sound so bad, get The Black Book of Communism. And people don't know what they're asking for. He's, Marx was not an atheist, he was a Satanist. Wow. Yeah. Wow, see, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, don't. Mike. Um, yeah, the historical context talking about where the Christians financially poor, poor in spirit, they were poor because not only was Rome defrauding Israel, but the religious leaders of Israel were defrauding the common people. And then on top of that, you had, if they didn't take the mark, and we can look at that as um, the Roman Empire saying, you know, if you don't worship and acknowledge that Caesar is the son of God, that we will not buy and sell to you. Yeah, that's but true. even the Jews did that. When yeah. someone became a Christian, they held a funeral for them, cut them off, and would not buy or sell to them. So the Christians had to stay together wow. and do that. So when you understand that kind of a context, you understand these passages and they oh, just start popping out. Yeah, wow. It's like I never even yeah, I, I I never even thought about that. But yes, I'd say they were really truly poor just because they were oppressed. Not because they were sluggards and didn't want to work. They were doing everything right. But when you have tyrannical elitist powers oppressing people, that's what happens. And that's that's the irony of it all. People look to these governments as their saviors. 
and they look to these systems as their saviors and they're going to make everybody equal. No, they're not. You, you are going to be worse off than you ever were. They're going to enslave you and kill you when you're no longer useful to them. And that's what communists do. Uh, but anyway, oh, that's a sour note to end things on. But yeah. <laughs> I was curious, and maybe I'm just missing the point here, but didn't Jesus say that the poor will always be with you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree. Did he not say that? He said yeah. it to the disciples. They, you know, yeah. the woman had broke the spike or whatever, and it was yeah. expensive, a year's wages, and the disciples were going to give it to the poor, but he said, no, yeah. the poor will always be with you, and this is for my burial or whatever, you know. So it didn't... Yeah. There's just a distinction between the poor. That's what he's, he's pointing out. Yeah, they're always before, yeah, they're, they're always the before with the us. And, and, yeah, and the true one that needs need. Right. The one. It seems like the, the interesting distinction that David brought up was that the slugger poor are the ones asking for alms. Oh yeah. The poor people that are broken spirit aren't asking for anything. And by the spirit connection they have with God, God is what's bringing them the support they need from outside in which the Bible says that we give men unto, give unto their bosom, men unto men. Yeah. They're not asking for help outwardly, but God's bringing them help outwardly. And that's, you, you bring up a good point there too, because a lot of times, people that are truly and legitimately in need, um, through no fault of their own, they, they're not the ones that are going to come asking many times. So we have to have our eyes open and be attentive to people's needs because sometimes you realize that and you ask the person, you know, do you need help? And yeah, they do, but they're not the ones who are going to, you know, come to you. It's like miraculous. We need to go to them. I mean, there are, God, those who legitimately need help, we are, you know, are called called to help. The big miraculous stories that sometimes you hear are the people that say, I heard in my spirit to give to you Mm. For no reason of my own, I give it to you, not knowing that they were in dire need of it, but weren't asking. Oh yeah. So when they were sick, then when it's like, oh my gosh, there's the connection where God's at. Yeah. So God had to do Sometimes this. Sometimes God will just because I didn't ask for it. Now to, it's here. Yeah. God will just move your heart to help. And somebody. that's where we have you, your attentive part is correct. Yeah. We should be attentive to that emotion. Yeah. And that feeling to do. Yeah. And it, just you know. Asking God to lead us and guide us to do smart things with our money because we're supposed to be stewards of what he's given us. So, you know, if we just, I I believe God wants us to help those who truly need help. And if we're not that wise steward, we're just giving our money to other things and maybe even other causes like a charity where like it top down, you know, they just skim off the top so much that it's not really going to the people that truly need it. And we need to be wise stewards with our money and maybe go to another charity where the, it's going actually to the person. Now, I understand that you're going to run a charity. It's like, yeah, you know, the laborer's worthy of his wages. But some of these ones, these guys are like getting rich off of charity. Yeah. It's just disgusting. Yeah. I tend to yeah. agree with everything that you taught today. Oh, that's but, good. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> you just stop right there. You know? <laughs> well, it seems to me that generosity can apply to more things than just materialist oh, things. Of course. And I've known some people that weren't poor, but who were hard to love. 
And yeah. Saying, you know, a kind thing to him once in a while or being a friend to him could be like the best thing that anybody could ever do to them. And some of the yeah. things that you said could, you know, we just assume it means material things. It means a lot of things. Yeah, true, true, true. I agree 100%. And that's where, you know, being attentive and being attuned to, you know, the Lord directing you and Him speaking through His Word, um, you know, I believe will answer for for every idle word we say, I believe, and, and we'll be blessed for every, you know, encouraging word and like keeping your eyes open and just knowing like when your fellow believers need encouragement even if it's not material uh anything material that's just your words you know and uh and sometimes that's more <laughs> you know sometimes something somebody says can be worth more than a million dollars you know